Daniel Gilad is a sound engineer and music producer that has been working in the industry for over a decade. Music for me is about creating relationships through sound. Each piece of music has its own personality, quality, and design. It is a reflection of the artist's soul and a small window to their story. Daniel has provided services for live sound, studio production, mixing, and mastering to some of Hawaii's finest artists. It is my job to be able to translate it and shape it to be shared with the world. Traveling the globe has exposed Daniel to a variety of music, cultures, and relationships. He brings this breadth of perspectives and experiences to his craft and has worked in many different genres, including folk, rock, hip hop, world, pop, sound healing, and meditation. Contact Daniel at dgsoundcreations.com to learn more about how he can help you with your next creative project. dgsoundcreations.com for all of your audio production needs. I am pleased and honored to provide post-production services to What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. We are well into season two and super happy to be on the air, bringing you another series of interviews this winter, spring of 2021. The gods willing, at least here in Hawaii, we will see the light at the end of the COVID tunnel, which makes this a fascinating moment to talk about education. The series, now halfway through its second season, has garnered well over 22,000 downloads. We thank you, listeners. We will continue to bring you the stories of agile, adaptive, and innovative public, public charter, and private school educators and education leaders until we have achieved a thousand points of light. We are many va'a, one voyage, all in it for all kids on all islands. Today, my guest is Serena Cox, a comprehensive school improvement resource teacher at the Kauai Complex area on the island of Kauai. I first met Serena when she was a science teacher and the deeper learning coach at Waimea Canyon Middle School on Kauai. In a season one episode, I featured Serena's principal, Melissa Spiegens. Serena was instrumental in helping me develop the 20% time segment in my new documentary film, The Innovation Playlist. She is the Kauai Island Teacher of the Year 2021, a program of the Hawaii Department of Education that honors a Teacher of the Year from each of the 15 Hawaii complexes. Serena was the 2015-2016 Teacher of the Year at the Dr. P.J. Fisher School in South Carolina and the 2012-2013 Teacher of the Year at the Greer Middle School, also in South Carolina. She is a certified Buck Institute PBL facilitator, among many other awards and certificates. Serena has done what all fully committed teachers do, direct the drama club, coach cheerleading and soccer, and mentor young people that they might be most likely to succeed. Serena graduated summa cum laude from Converse College in Spartanburg, South Carolina, with a bachelor's degree in elementary education, and she has a master's degree in middle-level science. 
And now, here's my conversation with Serena Cox. Serena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Josh. I'm so happy to be here. So, Serena, you told me recently that you think the best job of all is being a mom to your five children. And you you also foster kids on Kauai, where you live. So what makes being a mom the best job? Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, that's the that's a great thought to to share. You know, something about being a mother and just having that relationship with another person to the depth that you have, especially between a mother and son. And and it's the same with, you know, a mother and daughter too. But, you know, I had four boys and they were stair steps. And just to, you know, be responsible for another human being's life, to be able to mold and shape another person's life. And and not that you're always going to make the right decisions, because there were plenty of times that I've you know, probably could have done things better and done things differently. But, you know, just that bond that you have and knowing that someone um, depends on you and that you basically are, you know, you're just kind of, you're really in charge of everything about them and, and what they grow up to become or, or who they grow up to, to be and what they do in life. And just having that responsibility, I, I really took it I mean, it was just, it's a very serious thing, you know, it's Mm. just something really deep in my heart. And, and I mean, not to mention, you know, they're, they're born of my flesh and my blood. So, (laughs) you know, that's a whole nother level of just the love that you have for somebody. So just being a mom for me is, Mm. it's just fun. It was fun. It's just an amazing, it's it's an amazing job. Mm. So what are some really way cool things about your kids you would want? our listeners to know? Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, my four boys and my one and only girl, um, the four boys, they are they they are very close to each other. That's one thing I always taught them is they may go through life and you have certain friends that come into different seasons of your life. And that's great. But your brother is your brother for life and that, you know, your bond with that with your brother is really important. So always take care of each other. Mm-hmm. So I was really fortunate. My boys did not. I mean, they grumbled, but there was never no real down and dirty fighting between them. Mm-hmm. So I always really taught them. And so they, they've learned to really support each other. And they still do to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, as a matter of fact, moved to Montana and then two others followed. Mm-hmm. So that's how, that's how close they are. Right. My daughter is, she, she's an amazing 14 year old girl. Some people will say that she is way beyond her years and she is. And so I guess, you know, the thing about her is she's, she's just, very talented. She's very deep in her thoughts. She's really looks at life in lots of different ways. And so I think that really helps her to make some really good decisions. Mm -hmm. And she just really cares a lot about people and about what she really cares about what she's going to do with the rest of her life. She wants to make sure that she has success and everything going in the right direction for herself as well, even at 14. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really resonate with what you said about your sons and the way that they've they've bonded with each other. My mother had a daughter first and then six sons. Um, I always believed that she wanted another daughter and kept trying uh, until I showed up. I was the last and the youngest kid, and then she gave up. She was like, it's not going to happen, and, and this is crazy. Um, so, But my brothers and I have remained really close over the years. 
years. And that's a very special feeling. I can, I, I really hear you about that. And also I have a daughter who's 29 now and is um, a first grade teacher in California. So that, that sense of being connected to a person and having that relationship to a person, a young person who I'm no longer in charge of her, but it, it was very much a privilege to be part of her growing up and to help shape that growing up. Um, so that's really cool that you that you shared it that way. Um, Serena, how did how did you get into education? What what got you into education initially as a career? And then what brought you to Hawaii to teach? I came into it really kind of later in life. Um, I started out straight out of high school working at, in a hospital in a patient accounting department. So I spent and then I moved from there into uh, working in doctor's office and patient and billing accounts and then kind of moved on up kind of what I I don't want to say the corporate ladder, but kind of moved on up in responsibility and ended up actually opening up doctors' practices and setting up their whole practice from ground up uh, to getting everything ready for the fir- first patient to walk in the door. So that's kind of where my first experience was. Um, I went into education. My son started middle school. My oldest son, who is now 32, started middle school, and he was going to um, Tanglewood Middle which is where I actually went into school as well, was Tanglewood Middle. So I knew the school very well in the the community. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something about, you know, just wanting to be more a part of their life because working in the capacity that I was working with in healthcare and with doctors really started to require me to be really kind of on call almost like 24-7 to be ready whenever the the physician needed something or the practice needed something. Mm -hmm. And I really found myself wanting to be more involved with with my children. So I kind of stepped back from that role, from that kind of level of professionalism, and started substitute teaching. Uh, I started substituting in the school where my oldest child started to attend, and it just happened to be that my uh, high school principal, when I was in high school, was actually the principal of this middle school. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, right off the bat, we're very excited to kind of reconnect. And long story short. Um, a, a position came open to be a full-time receptionist or what is called here in Hawaii, the SASA there. It's just called their secretary. I became her secretary for the school and realized that I just, something about being inside of a school building, <laughs> about yeah. being around students and just, you know, I was working in the office. So I got to be the, the good, the good secretary, right? I was able to see the kids come in and I could say, hello, good morning. You know, they would come to me at lunch to kind of chat, talk story. Um, but, you know, in the classroom, the teacher kind of saw a different side sometimes, right? They're not always the angels in the classroom that they are in the office. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was kind of that, um, they called me Mama Cox, as a matter of fact. Mm. So I was kind of that mother figure that they could come to. And I don't know, it just, something about it, it made me I was like, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. But I want to even get more involved with students and make a bigger impact on their lives. I want to be in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I want to see them, you know, from day one to they graduate. So that's kind of where it started was wanting to be more involved with my children as well as then just finding this. This was kind of felt like home to me walking into a school building. Mm -hmm. And, And what brought you to Hawaii? Same thing there with Hawaii. I, you know, I was... 13 years into my professional career in South Carolina and nothing against teachers who have stayed at the same school, been teaching for 30 years, end up teaching their students, grandkids. You know, I, I commend them, you know, that they are, they are very, 
feel comfortable in that same setting. But I started realizing that I just kind of wanted more of an experience. I wanted to to be one of the teachers that would I usually would come across that said, oh, I taught here and I moved here and we you know, taught in this location. I've always had a real desire to teach in New York City, to really teach in the hard hit areas. And so at the time, um, I happened to get an email from, I, I don't even know how I got on the mailing list, but an email from the Hawaii Department of Education that they were having a recruiting fair in mm. Atlanta, Georgia. Mm. So I just hiked up and <laughs> went down to Atlanta one day and wow. <laughs> went to an interview. And uh, after that, it was like phone calls started coming, like 10 phone calls a day. And mm. I, I took the first job I accepted. Um, I accepted the first job that offered, I guess is what I'm saying. And it's just worked out great ever since. I mean, the doors just started opening. Mm. My husband also was able to find a job at the same luckily on the same island <laughs> and also at the same school. So hmm. doors just really started opening when we decided to make, we finally decided this was going to be our next move. Wow, that's fantastic. And we have been blessed ever since because you are here <laughs> and in the classroom and doing all of the things that you're doing. Um, so you have a personal motto, which you shared with me. Um, it is be helpful, stay humble, remain hopeful. I love that. Um Serena, what's the story behind that motto? And, and most especially, I want to know what you're hopeful about in this particular crazy moment um, here in April of 2021. Yeah, so that that motto, um, it, there's a little story behind that. I was I was working at Canyon, and and, and I think that's those three words: helpful, humble, and hopeful. Are always have always been a part of me throughout my through my my faith through just the way I, I as a type of person I want to be, but it kind of came full circle I think when I was started here in Hawaii, I was in a, a new place it was a new culture, um, I had left a school district that I was I'm just completely fond of I love Greenville County School District it's an amazing district on the East Coast, um, so I you know was coming into something new. Um, you know, the culture obviously is very different. My accent stands out. People mm -hmm. immediately know that I'm not from here. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I just wanted to make sure that that I didn't come with, um, you know, what they call the mainland mentality. Mm -hmm. I'd read about that. You know, I've heard stories of that. So I wanted to make sure that I didn't come with any of that. But I wanted to come and make a difference. You know, I wanted to come and be a part of the community, not just live on the island, but mm -hmm. become part of it. Um so through that, that meant that motto was created and it had a lot to do also with the job that I was at at Waimea Canyon, working with some of the teachers. You know, I just wanted to be supportive of them as well. So I never wanted to take any of my experiences and make it seem as I know it all or I have all the answers. So I wanted to keep that humility within me so that I could make sure that I was supporting them whether they're teachers or just anybody who crossed my path, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so just just keeping that really mm -hmm. at the top of my thought every day. Like this is what my role is before anything else. It is to be helpful to others that come into mm -hmm. my path. And what are you hopeful for in this particular moment? Uh, gosh, you know, I think when we, I think there's something really true to be and said that when we lose hope, that's when, we should be concerned. And so I always want to remain hopeful. And especially now more than ever, as education is changing, I think we still do need to be hopeful that 
this is an opportunity to make the necessary changes mm. in education, um, which kind of goes into this, you know, past uh, degree or, or training that I've had in transformational leadership is is when knowing when there needs to be a change and how to make that change mm. and how to inspire people to become leaders themselves. Mm. So for me right now to be hopeful is to know that even though it's been so challenging this year and there's been some some difficult times and some uncertainty and things have really changed from you know within 24 hours sometimes even within the hour or in the minute like we still just have to keep hope that we're going to we're there for our students we're there for the parents we're there for the community mm-hmm. and we as teachers we can still continue to move forward we don't need to get stuck in the mud mm, that's awesome thank you for that it's uh, i agree <clears throat> it's what we need in this particular moment it's sort of a combination of why not now let's innovate now right in the middle of this pandemic let's let's do it and then at the same time how do we nurture each other and support each other as we go forward um through this particular kind of tunnel moment where there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's still, a lot of things are still unknown. So that's that's very cool. So um, your resume is strong in the teaching of science, Serena. And I, I want to dig into an article I read in Explore Learning about you and about a simulation software you use called Gizmos. Um, so what is Gizmos and how does it get to deeper levels of learning in science and I gather math? Uh, yes, I do love Gizmos. Uh, Explore Learning, I've worked with that company quite a lot. Um, just as a, a user of the Gizmos, I became aware of Gizmos as a teacher in South Carolina. Uh, I've done some conferences for them as well, but the Gizmos, especially now with the fact that science has been really difficult to have the hands-on learning that's necessary for students to really grasp the scientific concepts and the scientific engineering practices, the use of Gizmos really lends itself for students to still go through how to develop and use a model, how to construct argumentative essays related around science concepts, because it still uses the simulations. And the simulations are, are, are so much like in the real life where the students can change the variables. They can, you know, analyze the data. Uh, it gives you those thought-provoking questions, and it kind of gets the students to do a deeper dive hmm. into really studying whatever uh, concept it is they're looking at. So, you know, it's computer-based, so students can access it. It's a website. They can access it anywhere. So it really has lent itself really well, especially during just, you know, school closures and the distance learning. Mm-hmm. You know, when I taught at La Pietra, Hawaii School for Girls, one of my first small step innovations, um, and this is, you know, quite a while back, I think really around 2004, 2005, um, was to use simulations in my history and economics and Hawaiian studies courses. So I'm super interested in the the simulation simulation aspect of gizmo so like how does it work like what's a specific example of a simulation so a listener could know kind of what you're talking about yeah so for one of the the best ones that i've always liked to use at the very beginning of with my students has been the grow a plant you know we we all have done the grow a plant we've done the germination of the seed in a ziploc bag and stuff you know if we were in the classroom Mm -hmm. 
But since, you know, students are not able to do that, then with the simulation, they can actually, you know, use different seeds from tomato. You actually kind of have this little area where you, you pull the seed from the packet. So you kind of drag and drop into the different flower pots using different seeds from tomato to carrot or whatever seed is there. Then you can also change the variables of how much light that plant receives, how much water, um, how much fertilizer. So you have all these different options to change the variables of that plant. Hmm. And, and you know, then it cre- automatically creates the graph for you. And then the students can then, you know, analyze the graph. It also gives you the options, you know, the questions that can be uh, answered. So the student really understands, you know, why did make, if they changed the fertilizer for all the tomato plants and one grew three inches higher, you know, what was it the light or was it the fertilizer like which variable was had the most impact Hmm. so it gives you these types of kind of drag and drops different variables that you can manipulate so students can then see uh you know they see the effect of how they change their variables on the outcome Mm -hmm. so it's and and there's that's just one of them there's another great one that i really love with dna where you can kind of change the attributes the physical traits of a species and then look at how those traits are passed down. So just seeing that take place is very similar to what, you know, students cannot do right now in a distance learning if they don't have, number Mm -hmm. one, the supplies, and number two, the uh, availability to go on campus and do that. So it sounds like it actually has um, possibilities when you're not in a pandemic and you can be in the classroom that these are, right? Totally, absolutely. Because even even prior, like I said, I've used uh, gizmos for over... 10 years. Uh, Even prior to that, when I was doing rotation stations, I always had a station set up where the student had to go and do a a short gizmo Mm. and answer a couple of questions. So I've used gizmos as an uh, entry point into a lesson, you know, using the 5E model and having them to explore a concept before the concept was ever even taught. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So it just, it has lots of different places uh, within teaching where it's in the classroom at home, review and reinforce in rotation stations. It, it, it's just a very well-built mm-hmm. platform. Yeah, that's super interesting. I remember, again, when I was at La Pietra and, and um, teaching history that I was playing around with a relatively new software at that point that was called Second Life. And it created these um, virtual environments where you could become an avatar um, and take on, you know, the, you could even wear the clothes of that person. And I was playing with the idea that I could recreate the constitutional convention um, and have my students actually occupy the roles of the founding um, fathers right down to the way that they were dressing and then to do, you know, like a, a, a week-long constitutional convention uh, and rewrite the constitution or something like that. So I, I love the idea of how simulations can get kids involved in authentic learning. And it sounds like that's what was happening for you, right? Yes, and, yeah. and I agree with you. You know, uh, you know, it's it's always great if you can have the the authentic actual thing right there where you can touch, feel, and see. Yeah. But but we know that's not always possible. And you know, there's always different reasons as to why it's not possible. Mm-hmm. So the the availability of programs like what you mentioned and the gizmos, I think is is almost like a it's almost like a must have for every teacher these days mm. to be able to have something to that effect that they can use with their students. And it sounds like there's some potential for place-based learning embedded in this as, in, in, as well. So like, for example, 
if your students can't get to that fish pond that's 20 miles away to do some actual science, you could build a simulation that mimics that environment to do some pre-work in anticipation of going there. Is that Does that sound correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, you can definitely do that. And that what which I think is actually great because, you know, when you think about field trips and you think about taking students into the field and doing scientific field work, hmm. as a teacher, you want to make sure you utilize every single minute because field trips are costly. Yeah. You know, they take a lot of time to plan and they're costly. And, you know, there's there's a lot of things you have to go into to make a field trip really successful. Um, so being able to give students that opportunity ahead of time, kind of like you know, a practice round, if you will, mm-hmm. to really, you know, do it that way. And then now let's take it out into the field. Let's really see what results we get. Yeah. You know, I think it's, I think that's really valuable experience beforehand. And and if you think about it, it's what real scientists do. You know, they do do some lab work. They do some things in, in the lab before they actually go out and do some of the real tests. So it's, it's preparing them in my mind, it's preparing them for what mm. real life science work will be. Yeah, that's so interesting. And you know, speaking of planting, you, you remind me of a very formative moment as a learner when I was a kid. I grew up on three acres of land here on the windward side of Oahu and um, I, I was building my first compost pit. And for some reason I had this spark um, sparky kind of a moment. And I, uh, the, the compost pit was well along. It was very warm. It was really composting. And so I planted a single tomato plant at the top of the compost pit and it just blew up. It was like I had injected it with steroids because it was growing in a compost pit and it got about eight feet high and then it died, like, you know, within minutes. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. <laughs> you know, you can, you can overnourish something, you know, I still remember that. And that was 50 years ago. Um, so yeah, that's very cool. So, you know, as part of the Kauai um, Distance Learning Project, you were able to secure funding for teachers on Kauai to have pro subscriptions to four uh, major digital apps um, to help engage students during um, school closure here during the pandemic and blended learning. Um, and those include Pear Deck and, and uh, I think it's called Kami or, or Kami um, mm-hmm. and Screencastify and Edpuzzle. Um, so you know, we're really talking about small steps that lead to increased student-driven learning and student engagement. So of these four apps, like which have the most potential for an educator to just take that small step and use it and and get kids engaged in authentic learning? Yeah, of the the four apps, and we did... uh you know, I went through several different platforms and got some different quotes from some different companies. And there are some amazing companies out there that have really, really taken this opportunity to kind of ramp up their mm-hmm. their product um, to make it very useful and beneficial and purposeful for teachers. So, you know, you can easily find yourself going down a rabbit hole when you start looking at all the different tech programs out there. Yeah. Um, but, but of the ones, of the, of all of them, the four that we selected, uh, really we felt had the greatest uh, benefit to our teachers. And I I have to say Pear Deck has been very widely used. It's a great program as well. The the most uh, purposeful feature and I guess most, I guess not just purposeful, but meaningful feature of Pear Deck has been its SEL component Mm -hmm. because, you know, the social emotional learning uh, part of, of all this that we're in right now is so crucial is to keep that connection with students and to keep that communication open as to, you know, kind of how they're doing. 
And Pear Deck does a really good job with that, it, providing the templates, providing the immediate feedback and immediate assessment in a very uh, secure and non-intrusive way. Mm-hmm. So in other words, students, you know, a teacher could ask a question, students can immediately respond, and it's an anonymous response. Um, the teacher knows who it is, but the other students do not know. Mm-hmm. So they can really then kind of, you know, look into those answers or look into those responses and and continue the conversation and go a little bit of a deeper dive and where their students are and what they're thinking. Mm. So Pear Deck does a really good job with that. Um, you know, it also provides the student-paced mode and then the whole class discussion. You know, but the same thing with Kami. Kami has great features that really lends itself to the accessibility for different students for their ways of thinking or the ways they want to communicate back to what they understand. So it has lots of great accessibility features. Screencastify, you know, we have a lot of teachers who use our Screencastify um, and recording their video tutorials for students to really help students uh, better understand what their directions are, maybe give an additional tutorial lesson that students can go back and revisit. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and then the same thing with Edpuzzle. Edpuzzle has a, the great feature built in that uh, our teachers have really enjoyed using that, again, does that quick assessment, you know, kind of chunks the learning so that students aren't watching a 30-minute video and then asked to answer questions. They're engaging in the learning as they're going along mm-hmm. in different little chunks. So the, it's been really great having the Kauai Distance Learning Project and being able to provide every teacher on this island those four apps so that they can really continue this engaged learning with their students and you know not just have this post and then complete yeah through google classroom yeah that's it's super interesting um and there have been elements serena of ed tech throughout all of these episodes that i've done because um it's not just a separate field anymore everybody is engaging with lots of ed tech technologies and they're communicating with each other um so it's really cool to see that Um, So, hey, everybody, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest. Serena Cox is the Comprehensive School Improvement Resource Teacher on the island of Kauai. So, Serena, you took several college courses with teacher cohorts through Clemson University, a university of South Carolina, Columbia, on student-driven inquiry and project-based learning. So I was thinking it would be cool, instead of Uh, you telling us how you define student-driven inquiry and project-based learning, you could give us a couple of specific examples of these approaches in action. In other words, paint us a picture that we can, we can, will help us visualize it. Yes. I, you know, the, the, those two programs it's specifically through project-based Clemson University and through the USC of University of South Carolina. I mean, they were so, they were, they were really wonderful programs. I would recommend them, highly recommend them to anyone. Um, the Clemson University was, I think, probably stands out as the most memorable in my mind. And one of the projects that we did was called Run of the Reedy River. Mm-hmm. In the middle of downtown Greenville, there is the Reedy River that's kind of like like most civilizations you know, that came to be were born around some water source. So mm-hmm. the Reedy River was the water source for Greenville, South Carolina, being a very textile city. Um, so at the time, you know, years passed, they, the textile mills would basically just dump the dye into the river so the river could change colors depending on whatever dye they were using at that time. So our purpose in this project started out as coming, you know, how can 
we utilize the source, the the power from this river to help light up the the complex around it, the Reedy River. Mm-hmm. Over the years, Reedy River has become a very historical district. So um, a lot of businesses, you know, wanted to build up along the Reedy River, a lot of hotels, restaurants. You know, it became a very metropolitan area. Um but it was also very dark. So that was one of the questions was how do we add light without taking away, you know, and making a very little human impact on the environment. And, mm. you know, you don't want light posts standing up everywhere. Mm-hmm. So it was called run of the Reedy river. And the students were looking at how to determine the flow rate of the river. And if there was enough power there that could actually be utilized to power streetlights. Mm. So that the first part of it was just, you know, it's, it, I found it, it's kind of like here, even though uh, you take for granted, sometimes I know when I moved here, took for granted that, oh, every student knows about the island, you know, but, but then I found out that that's not necessarily the case. Some students don't visit the other side. They stay kind of in their community. And it was kind of the same way in the Greenville area. If you lived on the east side, you didn't always visit the downtown area. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of students, I realized, that weren't even familiar with the Reedy River area. So that in itself was like almost an entry point and a hook for them. Like, oh, we're going to get to go to the Reedy River. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did a little history review on on the Reedy River and how it came to be and why it was so, such a significant part of the community. Um, what was really great, though, was we brought in the experts, which is a big part of the student inquiry is having students to be able to talk to the experts and, and ask more questions and then kind of actually do that field research. So we were able to talk to some people from the Reedy River Historical Society. Mm-hmm. We also talked with people with the Greenville Water Company to better understand the, uh, you know, the the structures around the Reedy River and the the runoff that it goes into, and then the the wastewater supply that's around that area. Mm-hmm. S- students um, took, you know, they tested the flow rate of the river from one entry point to the next. Uh, we then kind of took that information and students were talking to other businesses around the Reedy River, trying to get there, kind of surveying them, asking them, you know, what they thought about the lighting in the area at mm-hmm. night. Was it safe? Was it not safe? Where would be the most appropriate places for more lighting? So within this student inquiry, this place-based learning almost, students really started taking ownership of their learning. Mm-hmm. They started really thinking about, okay, what is the human impact on environments? What are the renewable and non-renewable energy sources? Is using street lighting the, from the river, is that the best way? Is Would solar panels be better? Mm-hmm. So within that, you just they start kind of getting deeper and, and really asking more questions, which then turns into having to go find answers and mm-hmm. do more research. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. It was just really cool. Wow, that's just that sounds like such a fascinating and authentic project that just centered them in their community. Um, and so, Serena, that's a perfect segue to my next question, which has brings us all the way from from South Carolina to Hawaii to what to Kauai and to Waimea Canyon Middle, where um, you were the deeper learning coach. So, this is a two part question that that gets at the section of my um, recently finished film, the Innovation Playlist, that shows. 20% time in action at Waimea Canyon Middle. So 20% represents an item in an innovation playlist that any teacher or school could try and it could be 
20% of one day a week, or as what happened at Waimea Canyon, 20% of every day. So pre-COVID, what did 20% time look and sound and feel like? What was what was its object and what kinds of changes did you see in student engagement as it unfolded? Oh, that was some great years doing 20%. I, you know, I've, I'm a big advocate for 20% genius hour passion projects. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it comes with many names. Yep. Uh, at that time, the 20%, the whole premise behind it was to really, you know, give students an opportunity to be self-learners, to take accountability for their learning and to really become more inquiry driven. Um, where, you know, the student is kind of like in charge of where they're going with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the 20%, it it was quite a task um, because change is always hard sometimes. And so coming into, you know, school that has been more of a traditional instructional pace, including that 20% time, which we included every day, it was a schedule change, uh, you know, and teachers voted on that schedule and, you know, had a big say in that, which I think is very a big, a big important piece if you do implement any type of project-based 20% is really having that teacher buy-in, mm-hmm. right? Really having right. That, com- that community buy-in. Uh, but we, you know, did have 20% every day. So it was kind of like that seven-hour block, um, about a little over an hour of that time. Uh, it started out as, you know, uh, align it towards more of certain topics. But then as we kind of started, you know, and with everything, things just evolve. You know, they, you start out one way and then you, you just kind of go in the flow that the student's interest in learning starts to take you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we then moved into adopting the UN, and I don't want to say adopting, I will say using the framework of the UN Global Goals as part of the 20% framework or the topics around it, mm-hmm. which if you think about the Global Goals, I mean, they're so connected to everything we do in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with them, but for one, for example, is Life Below Water. We right. live on an island surrounded by water, so no better topic than to talk about. But students were given the opportunity to select um, their topic, so they, they were able to you know choose their topic. And so what that looked like, again, would be students selecting their topic. They're going into this 20% class, and they just – what is it about, for example, life below water? What is it about the life below water topic that they are passionate about? Mm -hmm. What is it they want to see change in? What is it they want to do? Or how do they want to advocate for an issue? Uh, What do they need to bring more awareness of within their community? So that's kind of where it started from. Mm -hmm. And then again, led into even more where it became even more so of a true genius hour where if it wasn't connected to a topic specifically directly connected, then what is it that students, where's their passion? Mm-hmm. Um, so we then it involved into more of a genius hour type platform. And if students still wanted to connect something directly to a global goal, they could. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they you know, just wanted to kind of, maybe it was sewing. Um, mm-hmm. For example, my daughter, she was in the genius hour and she loves to sew. So she did end up connecting it to a global goal with uh, providing equality for, for women. Mm-hmm. So she started sewing outfits that, maybe were dominated, it was related to a male-dominated workforce, for example, military maybe, but she also wanted to show the feminism that of a woman. Mm-hmm. So she started designing clothing that represented a specific work job, but still had that femininity feel to it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one of her projects. But that's kind of how that would look, feel, and sound. I think if you was to walk into a 20% time class at that time, you would have seen some small groups of instruction going on. In some classes, you would have seen some students uh, working on creating a park area to to plant lemon trees. Uh, you would have seen in some classes some students using computer-based models to plan out the park area or mm-hmm. the garden area. They would have been using some computer-based models to actually build these 3D virtual reality experiences for students to kind of come and see the, the see a garden before they actually rent and started to plant it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had reflection at the end of every day, and for the most part, a majority of the students really took that time period to really think about what they were doing in their 20% class and shared a lot of insight and a lot of thoughts about why their project mm-hmm. meant to them and where their failures might have been that day and what they planned to do the next day. Mm-hmm. So there was just this, there was a, a wide spectrum of what was going on in the classes, but I really think the big focus was really just getting students to be more curious. Um, and it brings me to think about a quote by George Curious. It's like, if we haven't haven't lend ourselves for our students to ask more questions to become more curious by the time they leave school, then we failed them. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, that's, to me, that's what it was about, just getting them to think past the textbook, getting them to think past a review sheet, mm-hmm. getting them to think past a standardized test. Like, this is their world. You mm. know, their world is is going to be with them until they leave this world. So yeah. why not really understand it and have a higher efficacy about your natural surroundings? Mm. And and you you wondered, you know, or you said, you know, if you had come on campus and during 20% time, in fact, I did come on campus and I brought a whole film crew from Oahu, from Waianae Sea Writer, and we did <laughs> yes, capture, did. <laughs> um, and we turned that into a film, which you uh, listeners can actually see if you go to whatschoolcouldbe.org. It's at the bottom of the home screen. So the Follow-up question, Serena, is there was this article in Hawaii Business Magazine uh, written by Sterling Higa titled Necessity and Invention, Waimea Canyon Middle School. And Higa opened the piece with this amazing question, how do you tend a school garden when you can't attend school? Um, and I was <laughs> like, wow, that's a great question. So you get to answer his question. How did you pivot during uh, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic and how did you hang on to what you had with 20% Time and Genius Hour, even as you were forced off campus and, and into a distance learning mode? That was definitely a, quite a challenge. So we had two different uh, 20% Time projects going on at the time. There was actually a physical garden that was actually growing you know, produce and flowers that was being kind of uh, overseen or the facilitator for that specific project was two different teachers, Mr. Hurst and uh, Miss Lawson. So we had those two different t- teachers there. And so for her garden in specific, what they were doing was basically taking videos and pictures of the plants, growing them, sharing them with the students. Students were still, you know, uh, taking part in like what they think, you know, what need to be done in the garden, uh, still giving some suggestions online as far as how they were going to harvest, for example, the sunflower seeds, projects they were going to do with the sunflower seeds after they dried, how were they going to share whatever produce or things they had harvested from the garden, how they were going to share that within the community. So they were still having conversations about that online. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was still, it was still good for the students to be able to do that. 
um, for the project that I was actually working with another class, I actually had to do around lemon trees and through the, pro- the lemon tree project, which is housed on Oahu, mm-hmm. the students were looking at climate change and finding out that lemon trees is actually a really good source of absorbing CO2 in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So, of course, at the time, the lemon trees couldn't be shipped at the time. So a lot of the things kind of got postponed and if not canceled. But our, the students were actually able to use an online platform called CoSpaces and MergeCube and continue to create their virtual garden, if you will, and then simulate based on how many trees they were planting and how many lemons those trees could possibly produce in five to 10 years, how much CO2 it might absorb out of the atmosphere. So they were able to kind of create that simulation online using CoSpaces and be able to kind of share that out in a virtual reality mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. And we can put in a plug here for Lemonade Alley, which is the, <laughs> the project of Steve Sue. Uh, there are multiple parts to that project, including the lemon tree planting part of it, which is really interesting. I certainly didn't know that lemon trees were one of the the best sustainability plants that you can plant. Um but that's that's very, very cool. Um, so yeah. everybody, stay with us. After the short break, we will come back with more questions for Serena Cox. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. everybody. This is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Serena Cox, the former deeper learning coach and science teacher at Waimea Canyon Middle School on Kauai, and now the island's comprehensive school improvement resource teacher. So Serena, um, 
Um, I want to ask you about supporting parents and families and communities during COVID. You you do parent professional development, a term I absolutely love, um, and a term I have only heard in the context of blended learning programs like what you would experience at Hawaii Technology Academy, which does have a campus on Kauai. So what is the Serena Cox vision and mission for, for parent PD? And in, in what ways can parent PD be a part of um, you know, the education innovation playlist post-COVID? Yeah, that that is such a great question. And so the parent and community piece during this COVID pandemic experience has, I mean, it's really kind of brought that into the circle. I've always felt like the parent and community piece, even though we talk about it in education, me personally, I kind of felt like it was still not quite in the circle, if you will. It was like kind of on the outside of the circle still. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think this has really kind of pulled that piece into it and and not really even pulled. I think parents willingly came running to close the circle, so to speak. Um, You know, because there's such a vital piece of the whole student success and the whole student growing piece, right? Just to have that parent community within the school system. Um, So I, you know, there's such a need for it and there's so many opportunities for parents to become part of everything that is being done within their child's educational learning that's taking place. One of the things that I really felt saw the need of at the very beginning of the pandemic was a lot of, especially specifically here on Kauai and specifically the West Side, is there, you know, student parents, you know, we go to, and I've been guilty of this myself as being a parent. You know, I, I drop my kids off at school. I go to work. I plan to do what I need to do during the day. Mm-hmm. I pick my kids up from school and I'm thinking everything's good, right? We yep. go home, we do our family. But that's not always the case. And especially when now you have students trying to learn from home, parents really have to, we're kind of thrust into, okay, what's really going on? Yeah. Also having to know about the, the technology piece, how to navigate and how to, to understand how students are learning through this computer, this device that's now a big part of their daily life. Um, so that was a huge need. Hmm. So one of the things that we did was we offered uh, parent training, parent PD on how to use Google Classroom, how to understand what their students are doing in Google Classroom, how to better understand what how, what teachers are assigning their students and what to look for in Google Classroom and receive notifications if a student maybe is didn't complete an assignment or maybe needs um, some more time to complete or finish an assignment, mm-hmm. whatever that may be. So we did offer that to the island, to different schools around the island. And we had a great turnout for that. I think it was very appreciative on the parent side. They really enjoyed being part of that. And a lot of them, like, I never knew, you know, that's mm-hmm. the famous words. I never knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very helpful. You know, and, and there was also, I have to say, you know, some teachers were kind of like, well, what does that mean? Is my parent going to be in my classroom now? And it's like, you know, no, it's not that intrusive, but it does keep the parent aware of what their student is doing in the classroom, which right. is that was that missing piece we needed. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the, the other part of it is we're in a testing. We're still going to do standardized testing this year, even though there's different thoughts on how people feel about testing. And I totally understand that. Um, and it is a very challenging year. And there's people who do wonder why are we focusing on st- testing when we've been shut down half the year. And, you know, legitimate reasons and, and 
thoughts there. But the fact is, it is happening. And parents, again, parents are not aware that there's uh, an opportunity that students can actually go and do practice tests online, Yeah, that they don't have to be in school. So that that's another way parents can help support students is mm. going online to the AlohaASAP.org website and looking for the student practice test and having their students to do those at home. Mm. My daughter, poor thing, her mother is a teacher, so she she has to she has to do it all. She, yeah, she does it all. Uh, she's my guinea pig in everything I do. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. My my but, daughter was the same way. She had to endure many things because her dad was a teacher. Yeah. I actually have a classroom, a Google classroom that I set up and it's called My Mother is a Teacher. That is the name of my Google classroom. <laughs> that's, and that's where I post all of her stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So, um, Serena, so look, as we as we come down towards the end here, I've got several more things I want to ask you. So um, just briefly, you, you and I are, you know, um, we meet each other for the first time, you know, at a little sort of faculty lounge or something. And you teach at Waimea Canyon Middle and I teach somewhere else. And I learned that you're a deeper learning coach at Waimea Canyon Middle. And I'm like, huh, uh, our, our campus doesn't have one of those. So what is a deeper learning coach? And like, I'm curious now as to what the value of having a deeper learning coach on campus is. Hmm. You know, I'm still, part of me is still kind of figuring that out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not at that years into it. Yeah, but, you're still figuring it out. Yeah. <laughs> but at, but at, as I look back now at, at my time there, um, and I think about that, those words, deeper learning. And, you know, we have a lot of educational lingo that goes around and about from year to year. And there there are there is such a thing as the deeper learning competencies. Um, so in my mind, when I think of a deeper learning instructional coach uh, and maybe what how it compares and contrasts to your regular academic coach is I'm supporting teachers, not just at the new mentor mentee role, but almost supporting even the veteran teachers, or at least I, I hope I did or hope I am, and in ways that they can really take their instructional mm. strategies mm-hmm. to it to a higher level, you know, to where it really is opening up the door for student learning and student inquiry. Mm. Um, so to mm. me, that's in my mind, that was how I kind of perceived that role. And mm-hmm. that was kind of the path I took where it's, you know, it's, if, if the support was needed to kind of help you with classroom management, sure, that was mm-hmm. there. But we, uh, you know, good educators know that sometimes when your instruction is really strong and engaging, some of those classroom management things will kind of fade to the side. Mm-hmm. And so when, when you kind of take and think, okay, how can I really take my instruction and the students learning to a deeper level and for where I am guiding, they are reflecting, they are inquisitive they are curious. Mm-hmm. They are doing their own research. They become what what's kind of really called that level four of inquiry. Mm. That that to me is where you know it, school doesn't really become school anymore. You're almost teaching students, and they don't even know they're being taught mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they're having fun. Yep, yep. And your teachers are actually guides and mentors and coaches and sponsors and friends, right? They're they're not yes. really teachers. And you know, Serena, what's so fascinating about that? When I first started teaching way back in the in the mid '90s, I was at Punahou. You know, there was this moment that actually got a little bit ugly on campus where critical thinking was all the rage. And what Punahou did was to create a critical thinking 
committee and every course had to run through that committee to see if there was critical thinking in it. And it really sent the faculty over the edge. And what you're describing is the polar opposite of that, which is as a deeper learning coach, you're not coming on campus to force everybody to do deeper learning. You're coming on campus to learn who's doing deeper learning and to support them. Um, and that's a very different change model, right? I mean, am I on, on the right path on that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's the, that's the thing too, you know, teachers can be very uh, protective of their space, mm-hmm. of their classroom and of their, their topic, their subject area. And so it wasn't about, okay, we're all going to do this together. It was more like, well, let's look at what you know, we can take to a higher level, you know, and that's, that's one of the trainings. Again, I've mentioned that transformational leadership. One of the trainings was really about everyone has a potential for improvement. So as a deeper learning coach, I always feel like, how can I lift people up, inspire mm-hmm. them really, yeah, and to, to bring them to a higher level and, and go beyond expectations and really kind of reach what's just beyond their grasp mm-hmm. and really just, you know, you get to this place kind of like the zone that we talk about, you know, people get into the zone, you kind of get into this zone of teaching and you're not as tired at the end of the day. I always felt like if I'm, if I'm really struggling to try to make my lessons really relevant and rigorous, I'm tired. But if I, if I really plan my lesson well and really have those components in there where students are doing more of the learning and, and finding for themselves, I can better support them, Mm -hmm. giving them the feedback they need and, and as a teacher, I'm not so, I don't burn out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, yeah. it's a way of life almost. Yeah, I had a really fascinating episode with um, Dr. Helen Turner, who's the vice president for strategy and transformation at Chaminade University. Um, when she came on board at Chaminade, she spent an entire year, it would have been so easy to say, here's the the, the transformation that we're going to go through. But instead, she spent an entire year going to every corner of the campus looking for transformation and innovation. And that completely changed the game for everybody. Yeah. And that, so it's just, it's such a simple idea, but it seems difficult often for people to execute. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's mm-hmm. that's really, that's great. So. So look, I've got a couple more things to ask you here. One of them, let's say one of them is kind of in the weeds and the other one is going to zoom us back out again um, and look down at things from a higher level. But um, you you um, posted an article on LinkedIn um, or someone else's article about rubrics. And then you said the following, quote, think about it. Rubrics should be designed, better yet, co-created to motivate and support students to be self-directed learners. They should not confuse confuse or overwhelm students, unquote. So this got me really curious because I am very passionate about co-creation of rubrics, as it turns out. Um, And so I guess what I'm really wanting to ask you is like, to do that, what what is the, what is the why behind co-creation of rubrics? And what happens when you do that with students? What have you observed are the dynamics of something like that when you're co-creating it, what is essentially an, an accountability measure that everybody is going to be held to, that they're going to hold themselves to it as you will as well? Yeah, that article was a great article. It was written by D. Lanier with Link, L-I-N-C. And I think he's in Charlotte, North Carolina. I've done mm-hmm. a couple of PDs with him online. And he's a, he's a great uh, consultant and teacher. So 
and the whole premise, like you said, the why of the rubric, you know, why would we have students co-create rubrics? And it brings me back to student inquiry. You know, one of the big things about student inquiry is, is to really emphasizes the student role in learning, right? And we want to, you know, it's designed to teach students to love learning, to engage with material in, in their way and really develop a passion for exploration. And, you know, there's that saying that we, we, uh, remember or retake 70% of what we do, 5% of what we hear, and 10% of what we read. Mm. So when students are part of co-creating the rubric, you're basically, in my mind, you're asking them, what what do you need to be able to do to show me you understand this concept? Mm-hmm. So when students have a say in, okay, I should be able to do this, this, and this, if, if you want to understand, you know, for, for me to show you, I understand this. Mm-hmm. And when they are part of that, then they're already you've already got them into the learning process. Mm-hmm. So now they're they you bought them into it. They they know what is expected of them. So that's a huge piece is what is going to be expected of me mm-hmm. versus let me give you all the teaching up front and now I'm going to test you at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, that's no fun for anybody. And we all know that some students test better well, you know, way better than others. Um, so having students to be part of co-creating the rubric, they're actually they're being part of their learning process from the beginning all the way to the end. And I think that's really pivotal Mm -hmm. for students when you really want them to be engaged in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I I had this crazy moment when I was teaching at La Pietra where I took that step. Um, I had been like every other teacher who teaches a history class and you generally, the, the big work in a history class is writing papers. And you know that process, right? You write the paper for me, the teacher, and I read it and I grade it. I might mark it up. Um, but in the end, it's a finished piece of work and I'm the evaluator of what's good and what's not good in that paper. And so I would attach a rubric of my construction where I thought it would make it clear for the student how I was doing that evaluation. And then one day I just had this spark and I, I, I um, built a whole blank rubric up on the whiteboard and then took my students through what was about a 90-minute session of figuring out like what are the different parts of a really great paper. And we lined it all up. They had complete ownership of the content of each of the boxes. And then there was this shocking moment at the end when I said, okay, so this is how we're actually going to evaluate what you write for me. And they suddenly realized it was like, oh no, we've just set the bar really high for ourselves. (laughs) Right? I mean, they they Mm -hmm. will do that. Kids will do that because they want to succeed. Um, They will. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I have found that's really, you know, to me is just not very uh, fair, I guess, to students is to give them the a rubric, maybe, you know, at the end of a lesson yeah. <laughs> when they don't have it at the beginning. And then yeah. it's like this really complex table grid with a lot of lingo in there and words that they really don't even understand. Right. Yep. And mm-hmm. so you really... I've always kind of told, you know, especially even the 20% time we used a lot of rubrics with our projects. It's like you almost have to dissect the rubric with your students. Make sure as they're co-creating, they understand the flow, you know, what's being asked. And if for, for some reason, if maybe you didn't co-create, then at least give the student the opportunity to go through the rubric and yeah. provide feedback on it. Read it, share what they their knowledge of what they're being asked to do before you actually, you know, start 
targeting those different mm-hmm. blocks with them. Yeah, and I've been having these conversations with my nephew, um, Evan Beachy, who works at Kamehameha Schools for in their strategy and transformation division. And we've been talking about how you take that that one moment where you create a rubric and do it and you co-create with your students, but then stretch it out over an entire, for example, semester, so that there are certain boxes that are left blank because you don't know what you're going to be holding yourself accountable at a particular point in the future, um, which is a really intriguing idea. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. super interesting. So, so Serena, we've come down to the end here, and I, I have just one more topic I want to cover with you. Um, and, and this has been so much fun, and goodness, it's gone by like a shot, right? Um, I want to end by talking about the film Most Likely to Succeed. Um, you are a fan. Um, and I gather, were you there at Waimea Theater the night that Melissa Spiegens and Daryl Galera screened Ted's film? You know, I actually was not on island at that time. I think that was like the uh, couple months before we actually moved here because we mm. moved here in the summer of 2017. Mm-hmm. So I think that actually took place that following spring, mm. um, from what I understand. Well, Melissa Speechens, the principal at Waimea Canyon Middle, talks about that as being a transformative night. Um, and so I know that you've seen the film and and have dissected it. Like, what what was... What was its lasting impact, maybe even on the Waimea community, or in what ways have you seen how that film has had a lasting impact over the years after people see it? And maybe even for you, um, how it has impacted you in in the years after you saw it? Yeah, I, you know, I think it definitely has had its lasting impact um, here in on the island of Kauai. We have definitely, the, the conversations around what not just what schools could be, but what learning could be mm-hmm. has really been uh, at the forefront of a lot of conversations within teacher lounges and in classrooms, right? It's mm-hmm. it's just, it's not, we're, we're definitely stepping away from this traditional mindset of textbook learning mm-hmm. and starting to talk more about true student inquiry, place-based learning, project-based learning. And we're having those conversations where how are we creating these opportunities for students to be accountable and self-learners and pursue their passions and, you know, be able to teach in a way that students are going to be able to engage in what they're doing so that it's not just come into a classroom, sit, get, and leave. Mm -hmm. So I think the film, from what I understand from the, you know, the teachers who did view it at Waimea Theater is it really made them think about how they teach. And mm-hmm. that's what I, I feel like the film was meant to do. Like, are we really doing a, this? Are we, are we giving our students, are we giving the leaders of tomorrow? Are we really giving them the tools they need? Mm-hmm. You know, why do we keep doing something the same way if it's not really been working as well as we say that it should? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so I feel like that's what the, the, the movie really kind of provokes mm-hmm. within a teacher mindset is, Am I really doing what needs to be done so that I know that when my students leave my classroom, that I'm preparing them for what's to come next? Mm-hmm. And to me, and I just have to say this to me, it, it makes me think of my role as a mother. Mm. 
I love my students and I mean this and I know it's not cliche. I really, I have students to this day that I used to teach 10 years ago that I still communicate with and they reach out, you know, we have a good relationship still. And because I look at every student as like, if they were my own child, I want the best for my own child. I want to make sure that they're prepared and equipped for the life whenever I'm gone. So why would I not do that for my students? Mm -hmm. Because I feel just the same about them. So I feel like that's what that movie kind of did for me. Mm -hmm. And you know what really strikes me, Serena, is that for a lot of people who saw most likely to succeed, and, and, you know, I know it's not orthodox to mention a specific date in a podcast that might be heard later, but this afternoon, there's going to be a most likely to succeed reunion uh, that pulls everybody together. I think over the 10,000 plus screenings that happened across the United States, I think a lot of the reaction was, wow, that's an interesting idea, but oh boy, I could never do anything like that. And they were looking at high tech high, right? And what's so special is that Waimea Canyon Middle um, did something different. They said, oh, okay, we, we get what the why is here, but we're going to do a version of it that fits us and our place mm-hmm. in our community. And you did. You implemented 20% time. It began with a design sprint. Um, and you did all the things that you described earlier. And then you made those pivots during the pandemic. And it's really, you own it. The, the school community owns that whole thing. Um, so it's just an idea that really strikes me, you know, the way that your community mm-hmm. responded. Yeah, you know, and again, th- you know, things with change don't come easy. Yeah. You know, it takes time. You, you, there's, there's things that you know, as with anything that you do, there's always going to be the opportunity to look back and improve, and think, okay, how could we do this differently the next time? But there was so much positive, and so many students who really enjoyed the classes and learned a lot and had opportunities that mm. they may not have ever had through our twenty percent time, and it was a brave, bold. T- I would say risk to take because it was something so new, but I really feel like it's going to have its lasting effects. And, Mm. you know, I would say to anyone who wanted to implement a 20% time is, you know, get the, get the teacher buy-in, get the community buy-in and you're, you're, there's going to be times that you're going to be like, okay, is this really working? But you just keep persevering because it's about the student at the end of the day. It's not really about the teacher as much. It's about, what the student's getting and and what's Mm. best for them. So it really was a life-changing experience. Mm. Wow, what a a great way to bring this conversation to a close, Serena. I I really appreciate it. And, And I hope that you and your family stay safe and in good health in the weeks and months to come. And congratulations to your daughter as she begins her journey at Ilani School. Um, thank you. Yeah, I can imagine how proud you are. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and thank you for being a change agent in our public schools. We, we appreciate you so much and thank you for the time today. Thank you so much, Josh. It was so such a pleasure to talk to you again. Hey everybody, last week I started a new way to end my episodes. I'm a great admirer of Hawaii Business Magazine, which does a series each year called 20 for the Next 20. This series highlights mostly younger folks in Hawaii who will be powerful forces for good in the next 20 years. I will end each episode by highlighting one of these amazing individuals. The surfing career of Carissa Moore, four-time World Surfing League women's champion, can be traced back to Irish dancing in her living room. Her father, Chris Moore, remembers her avidly watching an Irish dance troupe on TV and mimicking the moves surprisingly well. 
Her experience as one of the only young girls at surf lineups is part of what prompted her in 2018 to start her foundation, Moor Aloha. Although the foundation is on hiatus due to the pandemic, it has spearheaded a number of surfing geared events, including intermediate and beginner training sessions and an international exchange and beach cleanup. Along with last week's highlight, Kuhio Lewis, Carissa Moore will make Hawaii and the world a better place for decades to come. She is part of our Hawaii Thousand Points of Light. Thank you, Carissa. You are an epic example of 20 for the next 20. This podcast is inspired by the book, What School Could Be. Please join the newly launched What School Could Be virtual community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his Facebook and website URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send us your feedback to mltsandhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at mltsandhawaii and at Josh Rapoon. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Friends, stay safe, wear a mask, stay physically distant from one another, and for the love of the gods, get vaccinated. Most of all, please bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho, and we will see you soon. Mm-hmm.